Chapter Fourteen of Abraham Lincoln: A History, Volume Ten. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Warren Cotty, Gurnee, Illinois. Abraham Lincoln: A History, Volume Ten, by John Hay and John George Nicolay chapter fourteen the fourteenth of april the fourteenth of april was a day of deep and tranquil happiness throughout the united states it was good friday observed by a portion of the people as an occasion of fasting and religious meditation but even among the most devout the great tidings of the preceding week exerted their joyous influence and changed this period of traditional mourning into an occasion of general and profound thanksgiving peace so strenuously fought for so long sought and prayed for with prayers uttered and unutterable was at last near at hand its dawn visible on the reddening hills the sermons all day were full of gladness the miseraries turned of themselves to tedeums the country from morning till evening was filled with a solemn joy but the date was not to lose its awful significance in the calendar at night it was claimed once more and forever by a world-wide sorrow the thanksgiving of the nation found its principal expression at charleston harbor a month before after sherman had conquered charleston by turning his back upon it the government resolved that the flag of the union should receive a conspicuous reparation on the spot where it had first been outraged it was ordered by the president that general robert anderson should at the hour of noon on the fourteenth day of april raise above the ruins of fort sumter the identical flag lowered and saluted by him four years before in the absence of general sherman the ceremonies were in charge of general gilmore henry ward beecher the most famous of the anti-slavery preachers of the north was selected to deliver an oration the surrender of lee the news of which arrived at charleston on the eve of the ceremonies gave a more transcendent importance to the celebration which became at once the occasion of a national thanksgiving over the downfall of the rebellion on the day fixed charleston was filled with a great concourse of distinguished officers and citizens its long deserted streets were crowded with an eager multitude and gay with innumerable flags while the air was thrilled from an early hour with patriotic strains from the many bands and shaken with the thunder of dahlgren's fleet which opened the day by firing from every vessel a national salute of twenty-one guns by eleven o'clock a brilliant gathering of boats ships and steamers of every sort had assembled around the battered ruin of the fort the whole bay seemed covered with the vast flotilla planted with a forest of masts whose foliage was the triumphant banners of the nation the rev matthias harris the same chaplain who had officiated at the raising of the flag over sumter at the first scene of the war offered a prayer dr richard s stores and the people read in alternate verses 
a selection of psalms of thanksgiving and victory beginning with these marvelous words which have preserved for so many ages the very pulse and throb of the joy of redemption when the lord turned again the captivity of zion we were like them that dream then was our mouth filled with laughter and our tongue with singing then said they among the heathen the lord hath done great things for them the lord hath done great things for us whereof we are glad turn again our captivity o lord as the streams in the south they that sow in tears shall reap in joy he that goeth forth and weepeth bearing precious seed shall doubtless come again with rejoicing bringing his sheaves with him and at the close before the gloria the people and the minister read all together in a voice that seemed to catch the inspiration of the hour some trust in chariots and some in horses but we will remember the name of the lord our god we will rejoice in thy salvation and in the name of our god we will set up our banners general townsend then read the original dispatch announcing the fall of sumter and precisely as the bells of the ships struck the hour of noon general anderson with his own hands seizing the halyards hoisted to its place the flag which he had seen lowered before the opening guns of rebellion as the starry banner floated out upon the breeze which freshened at the moment as if to embrace it a storm of joyful acclamation burst forth from the vast assembly mingled with the music of hundreds of instruments the shouts of the people and the full-throated roar of great guns from the union and the captured rebel forts alike on every side of the harbor thundering their harmonious salute to the restored banner general anderson made a brief and touching speech the people sang the star-spangled banner mr beecher delivered an address in his best and gravest manner filled with an earnest sincere and unboastful spirit of nationality with a feeling of brotherhood to the south prophesying for that section the advantages which her defeat has in fact brought her a speech as brave as gentle and as magnanimous as the occasion demanded in concluding he said and we quote his words as they embodied the opinion of all men of good will on this last day of abraham lincoln's life quote, we offer to the president of these united states our solemn congratulations that god has sustained his life and health under the unparalleled burdens and sufferings of four bloody years and permitted him to behold this auspicious consummation of that national unity for which he has waited with so much patience and fortitude and for which he has labored with such disinterested wisdom Unquote. at sunset another national salute was fired the evening was given up to social festivities the most distinguished of the visitors were entertained at supper by general gilmore a brilliant show of fireworks by admiral dahlgren illuminated the bay and the circle of now friendly forts at the very moment when at the capital of the nation a little group of conspirators were preparing the blackest crime which sullies the record of the century 
in washington also it was a day not of exaltation but of deep peace and thankfulness it was the fifth day after the surrender of lee the first effervescence of the intoxicating success had passed away the president had with that ever-present sense of responsibility which distinguished him given his thoughts instantly to the momentous question of the restoration of the union and of harmony between the lately warring sections he had in defiance of precedent and even of his own habit delivered to the people on the eleventh from the windows of the white house his well-considered views as to the measures demanded by the times his whole heart was now enlisted in the work of binding up the nation's wounds of doing all which might achieve and cherish a just and lasting peace grant had arrived that morning in washington and immediately proceeded to the executive mansion where he met the cabinet friday being their regular day of meeting he expressed some anxiety as to the news from sherman which he was expecting hourly the president answered him in that singular vein of poetic mysticism which though constantly held in check by his strong common sense formed a remarkable element in his character he assured grant that the news would come soon and come favorably for he had last night his usual dream which preceded great events he seemed to be he said in a singular and indescribable vessel but always the same moving with great rapidity towards a dark and indefinite shore he had had this dream before antietam murfreesboro gettysburg and vicksburg the cabinet were greatly impressed by this story but grant the most matter-of-fact of created beings made the characteristic response that murfreesboro was no victory and had no important results the president did not argue this point with him but repeated that sherman would beat or had beaten johnston that his dream must relate to that as he knew of no other important event which was likely at present to occur the subject of the discussion which took place in the cabinet on that last day of lincoln's firm and tolerant rule has been preserved for us in the notes of mr wells they were written out it is true seven years afterwards at a time when grant was president seeking re-election and when mr wells had followed andrew johnson into full fellowship with the democratic party making whatever allowances due for the changed environment of the writer we still find his account of the day's conversation candid and trustworthy the subject of trade between the states was the first that engaged the attention of the cabinet mr stanton wished it to be carried on under somewhat strict military supervision mr wells was in favor of a more liberal system mr mcculloch new to the treasury and embarrassed by his grave responsibilities favored the abolition of the treasury agencies and above all desired a definite understanding of the purpose of the government the president seeing that in this divergence of views among men equally able and honest there lay the best chance of a judicious arrangement appointed the three secretaries as a commission with plenary power to examine the whole subject announcing himself as content in advance with their conclusions 
the great subject of the re-establishment of civil government in the southern states was then taken up mr stanton had a few days before drawn up a project for an executive ordinance for the preservation of order and the rehabilitation of legal processes in the states lately in rebellion the president using this sketch as his text not adopting it as a whole but saying that it was substantially the result of frequent discussions in the cabinet spoke at some length on the question of reconstruction than which none more important could ever engage the attention of the government it was providential he thought that this matter should have arisen at a time when it could be considered so far as the executive was concerned without interference by congress if they were wise and discreet they should reanimate the states and get their governments in successful operation with order prevailing and the union re-established before congress came together in december the president felt so kindly towards the south he was so sure of the cabinet under his guidance that he was anxious to close the period of strife without overmuch discussion he was particularly desirous to avoid the shedding of blood or any vindictiveness of punishment he gave plain notice that morning that he would have none of it Quote, no one need expect he would take any part in hanging or killing these men even the worst of them frighten them out of the country open the gates let down the bars scare them off said he throwing up his hands as if scaring sheep enough lives have been sacrificed we must extinguish our resentments if we expect harmony and union Unquote. he deprecated the disposition he had seen in some quarters to hector and dictate to the people of the south who were trying to right themselves he regretted that suffrage under proper arrangement had not been given to negroes in louisiana but he held that their constitution was in the main a good one he was averse to the exercise of arbitrary powers by the executive or by congress congress had the undoubted right to receive or reject members the executive had no control in this but the executive could do very much to restore order in the states and their practical relations with the government before congress came together mr stanton then read his plan for the temporary military government of the states of virginia and north carolina which for this purpose were combined in one department this gave rise at once to extended discussion mr wells and mr dennison opposing the scheme of uniting two states under one government the president closed the session by saying the same objection had occurred to him and by directing mr stanton to revise the document and report separate plans for the government of the two states he did not wish the autonomy or the individuality of the states destroyed he commended the whole subject to the most earnest and careful consideration of the cabinet it was to be resumed on the following tuesday it was he said the great question pending they must now begin to act in the interest of peace these were the last words that lincoln spoke to his cabinet they dispersed with these words of clemency and goodwill in their ears never again to meet under his wise and benignant chairmanship he had told them that morning a strange story which made some demand upon their faith 
but the circumstances under which they were next to come together were beyond the scope of the wildest fancy the day was one of unusual enjoyment to mr lincoln his son robert had returned from the field with general grant and the president spent an hour with the young captain in delighted conversation over the campaign he denied himself generally to the throng of visitors admitting only a few friends schuyler colfax who was contemplating a visit overland to the pacific came to ask whether the president would probably call an extra session of congress during the summer mr lincoln assured him that he had no such intention and gave him a verbal message to the mining population of colorado and the western slope of the mountains concerning the part they were to take in the great conquests of peace which were coming in the afternoon he went for a long drive with mrs lincoln his mood as it had been all day was singularly happy and tender he talked much of the past and the future after four years of trouble and tumult he looked forward to four years of comparative quiet and normal work after that he expected to go back to illinois and practice law again he was never simpler or gentler than on this day of unprecedented triumph his heart overflowed with sentiments of gratitude to heaven which took the shape usual to generous natures of love and kindness to all men from the very beginning of his presidency mr lincoln had been constantly subject to the threats of his enemies and the warnings of his friends the threats came in every form his mail was infested with brutal and vulgar menace mostly anonymous the proper expression of vile and cowardly minds the warnings were not less numerous the vaporings of village bullies the extravagances of excited secessionist politicians even the drolling of practical jokers were faithfully reported to him by zealous or nervous friends most of these communications received no notice in cases where there seemed a ground for inquiry it was made as carefully as possible by the president's private secretary and by the war department but always without substantial result warnings that appeared to be most definite when they came to be examined proved too vague and confused for further attention the president was too intelligent not to know he was in some danger madmen frequently made their way to the very door of the executive offices and sometimes into mr lincoln's presence he had himself so sane a mind and a heart so kindly even to his enemies that it was hard for him to believe in a political hatred so deadly as to lead to murder he would sometimes laughingly say our friends on the other side would make nothing by exchanging me for hamlin the vice-president having the reputation of more radical views than his chief he knew indeed that incitements to murder him were not uncommon in the south an advertisement had appeared in a paper of selma alabama in december eighteen sixty four opening a subscription for funds to effect the assassination of lincoln seward and johnson before the inauguration there was more of this murderous spirit abroad than was suspected a letter was found in the confederate archives from one lieutenant alston who wrote to jefferson davis immediately after lincoln's re-election offering to quote, rid his country of some of her deadliest enemies 
by striking at the very heart's blood of those who seek to enchain her in slavery unquote. this shameless proposal was referred by mr davis's direction to the secretary of war and by judge campbell assistant secretary of war was sent to the confederate adjutant general endorsed quote, for attention unquote. we can readily imagine what reception an officer would have met with who should have laid before mr lincoln a scheme to assassinate jefferson davis it was the uprightness and the kindliness of his own heart that made him slow to believe that any such ignoble fury could find a place in the hearts of men in their right minds although he freely discussed with the officials about him the possibilities of danger he always considered them remote as is the habit of men constitutionally brave and positively refused to torment himself with precautions for his own safety he would sum the matter up by saying that both friends and strangers must have daily access to him in all manner of ways and places his life was therefore in reach of any one sane or mad who was ready to murder and be hanged for it that he could not possibly guard against all danger unless he were to shut himself up in an iron box in which condition he could scarcely perform the duties of a president by the hand of a murderer he could die only once to go continually in fear would be to die over and over he therefore went in and out before the people always unarmed generally unattended he would receive hundreds of visitors in a day his breast bare to pistol or knife he would walk at midnight with a single secretary or alone from the executive mansion to the war department and back he would ride through the lonely roads of an uninhabited suburb from the white house to the soldier's home in the dusk of evening and return to his work in the morning before the town was astir he was greatly annoyed when it was decided that there must be a guard stationed at the executive mansion and that a squad of cavalry must accompany him on his daily ride but he was always reasonable and yielded to the best judgment of others four years of threats and boastings of alarms that were unfounded and of plots that came to nothing thus passed away but precisely at the time when the triumph of the nation over the long insurrection seemed assured and a feeling of peace and security was diffused over the country one of the conspiracies not seemingly more important than the many abortive ones ripened in the sudden heat and hatred of despair a little band of malignant secessionists consisting of john wilkes booth an actor of a family of famous players lewis powell alias payne a disbanded rebel soldier from florida george atzerott formerly a coachmaker but more recently a spy and blockade runner of the potomac david e harold a young druggist's clerk samuel arnold and michael o'loughlin maryland secessionists and confederate soldiers and john h surratt had their ordinary rendezvous at the house of mrs mary e surratt the widowed mother of the last named formerly a woman of some property in maryland but reduced by reverses to keeping a small boarding-house in washington 
booth was the leader of the little coterie he was a young man of twenty-six strikingly handsome with a pale olive face dark eyes and that ease and grace of manner which came to him of right from his theatrical ancestors he had played for several seasons with only indifferent success his value as an actor lay rather in his romantic beauty of person than in any talent or industry he possessed he was a fanatical secessionist he assisted at the capture and execution of john brown and had imbibed at richmond and other southern cities where he had played a furious spirit of partisanship against lincoln and the union party after the re-election of mr lincoln which rang the knell of the insurrection booth like many of the secessionists north and south was stung to the quick by disappointment he visited canada consorted with the rebel emissaries there and at last whether or not at their instigation cannot certainly be said conceived a scheme to capture the president and take him to richmond he spent a great part of the autumn and winter inducing a small number of loose fish of secession sympathies to join him in this fantastic enterprise he seemed always well supplied with money and talked largely of his speculations in oil as a source of income but his agent afterwards testified that he never realized a dollar from that source that his investments which were inconsiderable were a total loss the winter passed away and nothing was accomplished on the fourth of march booth was at the capitol and created a disturbance by trying to force his way through the line of policemen who guarded the passage through which the president walked to the east front of the building his intentions at this time are not known he afterwards said he lost an excellent chance of killing the president that day there are indications in the evidence given on the trial of the conspirators that they suffered some great disappointment in their schemes in the latter part of march and a letter from arnold to booth dated march twenty seven showed that some of them had grown timid of the consequences of their contemplated enterprise and were ready to give it up he advised booth before going further quote, to go and see how it will be taken in r-d but timid as they might be by nature the whole group was so completely under the ascendancy of booth that they did not dare disobey him when in his presence and after the surrender of lee in an access of malice and rage which was akin to madness he called them together and assigned each his part in the new crime the purpose of which had arisen suddenly in his mind out of the ruins of the abandoned abduction scheme this plan was as brief and simple as it was horrible powell alias payne the stalwart brutal simple-minded boy from florida was to murder seward atzerodt the comic villain of the drama was assigned to remove andrew johnson booth reserved for himself the most difficult and most conspicuous role of the tragedy it was harold's duty to attend him as a page and aid in his escape minor parts were assigned to stage carpenters and other hangers-on who probably did not understand what it all meant harold atzerodt and surratt had previously deposited at a tavern in surrattsville maryland owned by mrs surratt but kept by a man named lloyd 
a quantity of ropes carbines ammunition and whiskey which were to be used in the abduction scheme on the eleventh of april mrs surratt being at the tavern told lloyd to have the shooting irons in readiness and on friday the fourteenth again visited the place and told him they would probably be called for that night the preparations for the final blow were made with feverish haste it was only about noon of the fourteenth that booth learned the president was to go to ford's theatre that night it has always been a matter of surprise in europe that he should have been at a place of amusement on good friday but the day was not kept sacred in america except by the members of certain churches it was not throughout the country a day of religious observance the president was fond of the theatre it was one of his few means of recreation it was natural enough that on this day of profound national thanksgiving he should take advantage of a few hours relaxation to see a comedy besides the town was thronged with soldiers and officers all eager to see him it was represented to him that appearing occasionally in public would gratify many people whom he could not otherwise meet mrs lincoln had asked general and mrs grant to accompany her they had accepted and the announcement that they would be present was made as an advertisement in the evening papers but they changed their minds and went north by an afternoon train mrs lincoln then invited in their stead miss harris and major henry r rathbone the daughter and the stepson of senator ira harris the president's carriage called for these young people and the four went together to the theatre the president had been detained by visitors and the play had made some progress when he arrived when he appeared in his box the band struck up hail to the chief the actors ceased playing and the audience rose cheering tumultuously the president bowed in acknowledgment of this greeting and the play went on from the moment booth ascertained the president's intention to attend the theatre in the evening his every action was alert and energetic he and his confederates heralds surratt and atzerott were seen on horseback in every part of the city he had a hurried conference with mrs surratt before she started for lloyd's tavern he entrusted to an actor named matthews a carefully prepared statement of his reasons for committing the murder which he charged him to give to the publisher of the national intelligencer but which matthews in the terror and dismay of the night burned without showing to any one booth was perfectly at home in ford's theatre where he was greatly liked by all the employees without other reason than the sufficient one of his youth and good looks either by himself or with the aid of his friends he arranged his whole plan of attack and escape during the afternoon he counted upon address and audacity to gain access to the small passage behind the president's box once there he guarded against interference by an arrangement of a wooden bar to be fastened by a simple mortise in the angle of the wall and the door by which he entered so that the door could not be opened from without he even provided for the contingency of not gaining entrance to the box by boring a hole in its door through which he might either observe the occupants or take aim and shoot he hired at a livery stable a small fleet horse which he showed with pride during the day to barkeepers and loafers among his friends 
the moon rose that night at ten o'clock a few minutes before that hour he called one of the underlings of the theatre to the back door and left him there holding his horse he then went to a saloon nearby took a drink of brandy and entering the theatre passed rapidly through the crowd in the rear of the dress circle and made his way to the passage leading to the president's box he showed a card to a servant in attendance and was allowed to pass in he entered noiselessly and turning fastened the door with the bar he had previously made ready without disturbing any of the occupants of the box between whom and himself there yet remained the slight partition and the door through which he had bored the hole their eyes were fixed upon the stage the play was our american cousin the original version by tom taylor before southern had made a new work of it by his elaboration of the part of dundreary no one not even the comedian on the stage could ever remember the last words of the piece that were uttered that night the last abraham lincoln heard upon earth the whole performance remains in the memory of those who heard it a vague phantasmagoria the actors the thinnest of spectres the awful tragedy in the box makes everything else seem pale and unreal here were five human beings in a narrow space the greatest man of his time in the glory of the most stupendous success in our history the idolized chief of a nation already mighty with illimitable vistas of grandeur to come his beloved wife proud and happy a pair of betrothed lovers with all the promise of felicity that youth social position and wealth could give them and this young actor handsome as endymion upon latmus the pet of his little world the glitter of fame happiness and ease was upon the entire group but in an instant everything was to be changed with the blinding swiftness of enchantment quick death was to come on the central figure of that company the central figure we believe of the great and good men of the century over all the rest the blackest fates hovered menacingly fates from which a mother might pray that kindly death would save her children in their infancy one was to wander with a stain of murder on his soul with the curses of a world upon his name with a price set upon his head in frightful physical pain till he died a dog's death in a burning barn the stricken wife was to pass the rest of her days in melancholy and madness of those two young lovers one was to slay the other and then end his life a raving maniac the murderer seemed to himself to be taking part in a play partisan hate and the fumes of brandy had for weeks kept his brain in a morbid state he felt as if he were playing brutus off the boards he posed expecting applause holding a pistol in one hand and a knife in the other he opened the box door put the pistol to the president's head and fired dropping the weapon he took the knife in his right hand and when major rathbone sprang to seize him he struck savagely at him major rathbone received the blow on his left arm suffering a wide and deep wound booth rushing forward then placed his left hand on the railing of the box and vaulted lightly over to the stage it was a high leap 
but nothing to such a trained athlete he was in the habit of introducing what actors call sensational leaps in his plays in macbeth where he met the weird sisters he leaped from a rock twelve feet high he would have got safely away but for his spur catching on the folds of the union flag with which the front of the box was draped he fell on the stage the torn flag trailing on his spur but instantly rose as if he had received no hurt though in fact the fall had broken his leg he turned to the audience brandishing his dripping knife and shouting the state motto of virginia sic semper tyrannis and fled rapidly across the stage and out of sight major rathbone had shouted stop him the cry went out he has shot the president from the audience at first stupid with surprise and afterwards wild with excitement and horror two or three men jumped upon the stage in pursuit of the flying assassin but he ran through the familiar passages leaped upon his horse which was in waiting in the alley behind rewarded with a kick and a curse the call-boy who had held him and rode rapidly away in the light of the just risen moon the president scarcely moved his head drooped forward slightly his eyes closed colonel rathbone at first not regarding his own grievous hurt rushed to the door of the box to summon aid he found it barred and on the outside someone was beating and clamoring for entrance he opened the door a young officer named crawford entered one or two army surgeons soon followed who hastily examined the wound it was at once seen to be mortal it was afterwards ascertained that a large derringer bullet had entered the back of the head on the left side and passing through the brain had lodged just behind the left eye by direction of rathbone and crawford the president was carried to a house across the street and laid upon a bed in a small room at the rear of the hall on the ground floor mrs lincoln followed half distracted tenderly cared for by miss harris rathbone exhausted by loss of blood fainted and was carried home messengers were sent for the members of the cabinet for the surgeon general for dr robert k stone the president's family physician a crowd of people rushed instinctively to the white house and bursting through the doors shouted the dreadful news to robert lincoln and major hay who sat gossiping in an upper room mr nicolay being absent at charleston at the flag raising over sumter they ran downstairs finding a carriage at the door they entered it to go to tenth street as they were driving away a friend came up and told them that mr seward and most of the cabinet had been murdered the news was all so improbable that they could not help hoping it was all untrue but when they got to tenth street and found every thoroughfare blocked by the swiftly gathering thousands agitated by tumultuous excitement they were prepared for the worst in a few minutes those who had been sent for and many others were gathered in the little chamber where the chief of the state lay in his agony his son was met at the door by dr stone who with grave tenderness informed him that there was no hope after a natural outburst of grief young lincoln devoted himself the rest of the night 
to soothing and comforting his mother the president had been shot a few minutes past ten the wound would have brought instant death to most men but his vital tenacity was extraordinary he was of course unconscious from the first moment but he breathed with slow and regular respiration throughout the night as the dawn came and the lamplight grew pale in the fresher beams his pulse began to fail but his face even then was scarcely more haggard than those of the sorrowing group of statesmen and generals around him his automatic moaning which had continued through the night ceased a look of unspeakable peace came upon his worn features at twenty-two minutes after seven he died stanton broke the silence by saying quote, now he belongs to the ages unquote. dr gurley kneeled by the bedside and prayed fervently the widow came in from the adjoining room supported by her son and cast herself with loud outcry on the dead body end of chapter fourteen recording by warren cotty gurney illinois